Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for joining me. Tonight's author, Werner Bergengrun, was perhaps meant to see things from many diverse cultural and human perspectives. He was born in 1892 in Riga, which at that time belonged to the Russian Empire. Now it is the capital of Latvia. After growing up in Lübeck in northern Germany, he started studying theology in Marburg in 1911. He later changed to studying literature and art history, but failed to graduate. He then moved to Munich. He served as a lieutenant during World War I. Bergengrün started writing novels and short stories in 1923 and decided to become a full-time writer in 1927. His earlier works pondered metaphysical and religious questions, but the Nazis' rise to power led him to write more political works. His most successful novel, The Great Tyrant and the Court, published in 1935, is set in the Renaissance era, but the story of a merciless tyrant playing with the weaknesses of his underlings has often been seen as an allegory on Germany's political situation. In 1936, Bergengoyne was received into the Catholic Church, the following year, he was expelled from the Reich Literature Chamber for being unfit to contribute to German culture. That must have been a badge of honor. Bergengoyne's Catholicism, as well as the fact that his wife was of partly Jewish heritage, contributed to his alienation from the Nazi regime. Having run afoul of the Nazis in the 30s, he didn't fare well either with the left-wing culture of the 1960s. His Catholic faith and his warm and tolerant sense of humor made him skeptical of all ideologies. Certainly no nationalist could do much with tonight's story. In this tale, set in the early 19th century during the Napoleonic Wars, nationality becomes largely a matter of chance. In Balkenguin's stories, life sometimes proceeds by misunderstanding and chance, and his affectionately observed characters make their way as best they can in a chancy world where in spite of it all, and there's a lot of in spite here, Bergengoyne seems to believe that it just might somehow all work out. The Sand Doctor by Werner Bergengoyne Diplinger was studying medicine, he had debts, and there was no end in sight. We all know what that is like. His father, who owned a farm near Ingolstadt, was pushing him to finish his studies. The army was mobilized to march against Russia because King Max Joseph was in league with the French Emperor Napoleon. Like other students, Diplinger enlisted as a junior physician and had the misfortune to be taken prisoner. But let's not talk about good or bad fortune quite so soon. Diplinger had the rank of lowest commissioned officer. Among the Russians, a lowest commissioned officer is regarded as an officer, and Diplinger was treated as an officer. They had him give his word of honor not to try to escape, and assigned him to stay in Berdyakev. He had to travel many days to reach it. There's no need to describe the town of Berdyakev. It is a county seat, and just like countless other county seats in every way. And actually, there is no need to describe Diplinger either. Everyone has known someone like him. To be sure, we could say that among the many low houses in Berdyakev, there was a four-story wooden house on the west side of the market square across from the building housing the county government. 
It had been erected many years before, on a curious whim, and the canon had said at the time that all overweening human pride had begun with the building of the Tower of Babel. Later, it became a rooming-house. It wasn't very popular because who likes to climb stairs? And so no very respectable people lived there, so much the more so the higher up you went. On the fourth floor lived the widow of the registrar, and it was from her that Diplinger rented a room. He didn't like to climb stairs any more than anyone else, especially as he was inclined to plumpness, and he lamented the misfortune of his captivity. Not excessively, however, because his situation was certainly more comfortable in Berdyakev than it had been with the regiment. The widow was satisfied with him. He was quiet and didn't damage anything. The previous renter had run off owing two months' rent, and she thought she was safer having a prisoner. It did disappoint her, though, that he was unchained. By the way, it had seemed to her a bold venture at first to take a Frenchman into her apartment. When she went shopping, the storekeeper lady asked her what he was like. She answered, "'By heaven, I'm telling you the truth, he's just like us.' Perhaps she had thought the French had horns on their heads, or six legs. Diplinger was considered to be a Frenchman, because what did they know about Bavaria in Berdyakev? And— After all, he had been taken prisoner in the French war. This brought advantages, but also difficulties, although the advantages outweighed the difficulties. Diplinger was allowed to move about freely in the town and the surrounding area, but he had to report every day around noon at the main guardhouse. Here sat a lame captain who had fought against the French under General Suvorov, and as a result was considered an authority in all matters that had to do with the French. Curious people asked him about Diplinger, and it even happened that someone asked him to serve as an interpreter in this matter or that. At length he said irritably that it was hard for him to communicate with him because the French doctor spoke a certain dialect that was called the Languedoc. In Berdyakev there was a doctor, a man given to excessive drinking and now senile and disheveled. The man sought Diplinger out, feeling obliged to watch out for a colleague. Besides, he was bored, since no one wanted to hear his old jokes any more. He wanted to speak French with the prisoner, but Diplinger's French was weak, and since he still remembered some Latin from his school days with the monks in Ingolstadt, he said, Intelligis Latine? The doctor looked at him with a terrified expression. Scientiam habesne linguae latinae? asked Diplinger. Uh, Habeo, habeo. The old man stuttered in confusion, and now Diplinger explained to him that it was not seeming among scholars to use the same language that was used back home by carpenters and draymen. They chatted on for a while, and didn't say what they actually wanted to say, but only what they could by chance paraphrase with a few phrases that came to mind. And this peculiarity marked all of the conversations that were carried on between Diplinger and the people of Berdyakev. Diplinger realized that it was almost more important for him to know French than Russian. He got himself a few books, but studying had never been easy for him, and so he didn't get very far. Whenever he sat with his books by the window, his gaze wandered and went down to the huge empty market square, where pigs and children rolled around in the dirt, and militiamen, who were supposed to be learning to stand at attention, got in the way of wagons and carts, and yet the square never seemed any the more crowded. Diplinger watched and smoked his pipe, 
or cracked sunflower seeds and spat the shells on the floor, for these tidbits had quickly become a habit with him. Diplinger received numerous offers to give instruction in the French language, in dancing, and in social graces, because, since the people had got used to calling him our Frenchman, they were convinced that he must be well versed in these three things, and they found something genuinely French in his manner. It cost him some effort to resist such offers. He was invited to people's homes a lot, and was treated royally. Thus, he didn't lead a bad life, although the beer wasn't entirely to his taste, and finally he even learned to make himself understood. It had been a long time since he went to the police station, because the old captain had become bored with seeing him come every day, and then having to answer questions later about what the Frenchman had said today. Then an arrangement had been made that Diplinger sent a daily written notification by his landlady's nephew, who received six kopecks a week for his efforts. As time went by, this too became excessive, and it became their practice that the paper with the notification, with the captain's signature affixed once and for all, was given right back to the boy at the police station. Only the date had to be changed each day by the captain's clerk, and so the paper served until the front and back sides were covered with crossed-out dates, or until the sheet had been blackened by the fingers of the messenger boy. Then they started a new one. In the end the paper just stayed at the police station, and once every month the clerk had to enter all the calendar dates on the back side and stamp them. And with the exception of the messenger boy, whose monthly income was thus reduced from twenty-four to six kopecks, it worked out to everyone's satisfaction. Only on the twentieth of each month did Diplinger go to the police station to receive his prisoner's pay. To get along on this would have been difficult, for Diplinger was not fond of limiting himself. But this wasn't necessary, for hardly had it got around that he was a doctor before some people made bold to come to him. What opportunities were there in Berdikev to satisfy a spirit of enterprise? One followed the other, and since the wife of the police captain suffered from a cold stomach, and the marshal of the district nobility needed a new salve for rheumatism, no one asked about his right to practice medicine. The old doctor was pleased to be relieved of some work, especially when the weather was bad. He invited Diplinger to consultations a few times, having put together some Latin sentences in advance, and so the two got along in an important, learned, and courteous fashion. But at length he had to notice that the relief that served his comfort also had its cost in terms of his popularity and his medical reputation. Diplinger's knowledge was modest, and would have sufficed in a pinch for the soldiers, who, of course, are not allowed to complain. He was fortunate, for the inhabitants of Berdyakev are a people of robust constitutions who are equal to their illnesses. But there were also those who didn't feel quite satisfied, especially after the first wave of French fashion had passed. Also, the old man had been going around recently, smiling maliciously and mysteriously, and saying that they would see how things turned out. He was alluding to a report he had directed to the governor, in which he said, I humbly request to bring to the attention of your excellency that the basis of his medical knowledge is not the true science practiced in our country, but a mixture of foreign nonsense, and who can say whether his countrymen haven't put him up to undermining the Russian people. Now there lived in the northern tip of the territory of Berdyakov, 
far off from the city, a prosperous young landowner by the name of Vera Livovna Bulkina. Her husband had had to join the army right after their wedding, and had been killed in the first encounter with the enemy. She was expecting a child, and when the time had come she moved into her city house in Berdyakev. In her period of mourning she had led a very withdrawn life, and so the news had not yet reached her ears that there was now a French doctor, and she was planning to seek the help of the old doctor. It seemed to be a difficult birth, and Mrs. Bulkina suffered terrible pain. The child didn't come and didn't come, and the young woman thought her agonies would never end. It was late at night when the doctor's eyes fell shut. "'There's nothing to do but be patient,' he said at last. "'God be with you, Matushka. I am an old man. I've got to get some sleep. I'm supposed to set out into the country tomorrow morning.' In vain did the women in the Bolkina household beg him to stay, and not even the midwife could prevail on him. He left. The woman in labor was so wretched that she made no attempt to stop him. The women moaned and murmured. One of them spoke of the French doctor, who she said was not as sleepy as the old man. And now that she had begun to talk about him, she continued to talk and told about wondrous cures that he was supposed to have achieved. "'He knows how to prescribe powders and drops. There's just no getting over it,' she said. "'He just writes it down, the apothecary just has to mix, and already God has bestowed health on the patient.' At last, with a weak voice, Mrs. Bulkina agreed to have him come. The old woman who had praised him got her shawl and set out. It was a stormy night at the end of March, and the snow was falling from the roofs with great resounding thuds, and the melting snow sloshed beneath her feet. Dipplinger had drunk more than usual the previous evening. He was asleep and refused to wake up. But his name was persistently called out into his dreams. At last he woke up, irritated, lighted a lamp as the shouting continued, and went to the window. He opened it with effort, and the storm almost tore it from his weary hand. The old woman down on the square had to shout with all her might, for the wind swept the words from her mouth. "'Your honor!' she cried. "'Honorable doctor, in Christ's name have pity! Vera Livovna is deigning to be able to bring a child into the world!' It took a while for Dipplinger, who was drunk with sleep, to grasp what was going on. "'What sort of child?' he cried furiously. "'Why don't you fetch the midwife? I'm not an obstetrician!' in the middle of the night, and in this weather. The old woman complained, flattered, and begged, always having to make herself heard over the howling of the storm. Her husband is dead, she is alone, like a little finger, like a cut-off slice of bread. Do you want to see the family perish? Have pity. Be good enough to come. God will reward you. Dipplinger, who had never assisted at a birth, referred to the old doctor. Standing in his nightshirt at the open window, he felt the most intense repugnance toward the delivery, the woman, the child, the weather, and to everything but his bed. He muttered and cursed. But people love coarse doctors, and seem to trust them most. Patushka, most gracious one, you have a conscience? You won't abandon our mistress? You, our benefactor, our provider? You don't have to come— a potion, a little powder, write a prescription. God has given you this gift. All right, muttered Dibblinger finally. A prescription. 
in the devil's name. Wait. I'll wait. I'll wait. Just write a prescription by your lordly will. He closed the window, took a swallow of water to wake himself up, and sat down at the desk. He couldn't think of anything. Finally, he wrote down the name of a powder that was considered to have a strengthening as well as a calming effect, and so that the apothecary wouldn't wonder at being roused from his bed in the middle of the night for something so very ordinary, he added a couple of ingredients, bitter and sweet, that could certainly do no harm. He wrote his name below it, scattered sand on the paper to dry the ink, and went to the window. But now there was a new difficulty— How the devil was he to get the prescription into the hands of this cursed woman? He couldn't just throw it down. The storm would carry it halfway across the city. The front door downstairs was bolted from the inside, and to go down four flights and back up in this night, that was all he needed. Thank heavens he had an idea. He folded and twisted the sheet of paper into a little bag, and filled it with the fine gold-colored sand that he kept in a little wooden box next to the inkwell for drying the ink. The weight would be enough to bring the paper safely to earth, and just to be safe, he closed it tight with a wax seal. "'Watch out!' he cried. "'Here it comes!' He threw the packet into the dark, heard it land with a thud, and cut off the old woman's whiny chatter by asking her to tell him the name and address of the woman in childbirth. "'All right!' "'All right,' he cried. "'I'll stop by tomorrow and see how things are. "'Good night, and may the devil take you.' He closed the window, returned to his bed, and fell back to sleep right away. Toward morning, the baby was born, a healthy girl almost eleven pounds. Keep in mind that the Russian pound is smaller than the German pound, otherwise it would have been a misfortune for Vera Livovna. "'I've got to see him.' "'I've got to see him,' the new mother cried again and again. "'Bring him here. I want to thank him.' In the morning, Diplinger set out unwillingly, and yet he was in some worry that the birth might not have gone well. The nocturnal storm had passed, and the sky was a light blue. The yellow sun shone on the melting snow, and was reflected in the sparkling puddles, and from the softness of the air and the cheerful noise of the birds, Diplinger gained some sense of relief and confidence.' And lo and behold, the women received him with smiles and with reverence. With cries and chatter they crowded around him, and the old woman, who had torn him from his sleep, kissed his hands and called all heavenly blessings down upon him. They showed him the child, which struck him as no different from any other child, from Ingolstadt to Berjikev, and they led him on tiptoe to the mother. One of them pulled the curtains back a bit, and there the young woman lay, asleep in her fine mahogany bed, decorated with golden little cupids. She was still a little pale, and the beautiful blue-black hair, which had been braided into two thick braids, lifted the paleness in a touching way. Diplinger looked at her with pleasure, and suddenly had the feeling that he had done his best at this birth. He withdrew cautiously, gave some directives in the vestibule, and recommended port wine with raw eggs to strengthen the young woman, and said he would come again soon. Amidst touching expressions of gratitude, the old woman helped him into his overcoat. "'That wonderful, fine old powder!' she cried time and again. "'Doctor, you knew right away that there is healing power in the gold, true healing power. Heaven arranged it that way.' "'The gold?' 
asked Diplinger in amazement. "'What do you mean in the gold?' "'What do you think, Your Honor? It was golden, the good powder that you deigned to throw from the window, golden as the gold in God's church.' "'Oh, yes,' said Diplinger. "'Yes, of course. Well, and how did you give it to the lady?' "'In Rowanberry Brandy, dear benefactor,' the old woman reported eagerly. "'We thought it would be more effective than in water. "'We gave her a little glass every few minutes "'until all the powder was gone, "'and that's when the baby came. "'A child like a miracle. "'Batushka, you'll have to give me some of the powder. "'At Pentecost it will be my niece's turn.' "'Vera Lvovna's happy delivery "'wasn't without consequences for Diplinger.' not the least of which was the fact that it secured his reputation as a doctor. From now on he came frequently to see the widow, to check on the health of mother and child, and to help where he could. Since Vera Levovna's cousin as a government official had been assigned to the governor to carry out special missions, the old doctor received an unexpected answer to his report. He was called into military service in the district capital and assigned to head up a military hospital that had been funded by a patriotic lady. This was an honor for him, and very pleasant besides. He had his circle of associates and drinking companions, and there were even people who didn't know his stories and sayings, and there wasn't a lot of work. Only once two militiamen were brought in who had been fighting, and once a recruit from the riding academy who had broken his collarbone. The theater of war was so far removed from the district capital that the wounded that were to be brought in recovered along the way if they were fortunate, and if they were unfortunate, they died along the way in accordance with standard regulations. But we had already decided at the beginning of the story not to make judgments too quickly about fortune or misfortune. The old doctor, by the way, is of no further concern to us at this point, and the main thing for us is that his sally against Diplinger had run like water into the sand. And from now on, Diplinger took note that the sand in the box on the desk had gold in it. When spring came, Vera Lvovna returned to her estate, and now she frequently sent Diplinger her carriage, and whenever his professional duties permitted, he went out to see her. For such trips the captain at the police station had had to issue him a permanent pass— the widow and Diplinger became friends. He was a fine-looking, handsome young man, and he even knew something about agriculture. She knew a little German, and in time he even made progress in French. Shortly after the Battle of Leipzig in 1813, the King of Bavaria went over to the side of the Allies, and thus Diplinger had become a friend of the Alliance and was suddenly no longer a Frenchman, which some people in Berdyakov found disappointing. But by the time this news reached Berdyakov, and before the consequences were drawn, the release of prisoners and such things, Diplinger wasn't disturbed by anyone for quite a while. But then one day he realized that he had to make some decisions. Should he really return to Bavaria now, march off to France in a new war, go back to school in Lanshut, and get mixed up with creditors and his father's admonitions? He went to take counsel with Vera Lvovna, it began with his telling her about the prescription, whereupon she laughed and threw her arms around his neck, but then she sighed 
and pressed her pretty little lace handkerchief to her eyes, and said that her old nursemaid, who knew about fortune-telling by cards and interpretation of dreams, had always prophesied that sand would bring her good and bad fortune, and that the village where her husband had been killed was called Pasky, and Diplinger knew enough Russian by that time to know that this name signified a sandy stretch of land. They married in the year 1814, and following this Vera Lvovna was able to arrange matters so that Diplinger became a director of a hospital in Petersburg. By the time the sand in the hourglass of his life had run out, he was a knight of the Order of St. Anna, and owned two estates in the district of Tver. The German newspaper in St. Petersburg published an extensive obituary and called him a meritorious pioneer of the German element in Russia. His great-grandson, who didn't know a single word of German, was captured by the Bavarians in 1914, and because he was a young volunteer and hadn't attained any rank, he was put to work on a farm. After the war he stayed there and married into a Bavarian family for what would he have wanted to do in Russia after all the changes brought by the revolution? He had a son who grew up as a Bavarian and was studying medicine in Munich. He was drafted into the army, and who knows how our story would go on if we hadn't decided to end it with this prospect. You have been listening to The Sand Doctor by Werner Bergengrün. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. If you're enjoying this series, please tell your friends. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, all the best. Thank you.